The FDA said that it would allow certain COVID antibody tests to be sold without review. That's Connor Hale, an editor here at Fierce Biotech. Later, we'll hear more from him about the first monkeypox test to score emergency use authorization and the lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by Zymo Research. Today is Friday, September 16th. Stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Okay, so this is exciting. We're hosting the Fierce Biotech Summit on September 19th and 20th. The two-day conference covers drug development from the earliest stage of research to FDA approval. We've got a great lineup of speakers and we'll announce the Fierce 15 honorees. You won't want to miss this. So if you're worried about getting FOMO, then join us in Boston. Check it out at FierceBiotechSummit.com. Coming up next, the news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Zymo Research is a world leader in sample collection. Safe Collect sample collection kits are designed for at-home sample collection with no cold shipping or expedited shipping required. Samples stay stable at ambient temperature for up to 30 days, and samples are safe to transport with DNA, RNA shield, and activating pathogens, including COVID-19 and monkeypox. I received a series of sample collection kits from Zymo Research, and we tested them out with my family. Both the oral swab and saliva collection methods were very easy to use. I have two young kids, and I can confirm that it is not easy to do proper nasal swabs on children under five. While the saliva collection took a little while to complete, it was very effective with my five-year-old. He even had fun doing it. And my two-year-old did great with the oral swab. It's highly preferred over the traditional nasal swabs. The sample instructions were clear, the collection method was easy, and I was comforted knowing that any pathogens would be deactivated once they enter the test collection kit. If you'd like to learn more about Safe Collect sample collection kits, go to zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O research.com. For months, Moderna has been talking about a private COVID-19 vaccine market. Now it is sizing up the sales opportunity. As Fraser Kinsteiner reports, if the COVID shot is priced at about $100 and half the U.S. adult population gets one each year, then the private market could be worth almost $13 billion. That opportunity would be shared between Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech. Moderna issued a report on its 2022 R&D day. The report didn't specify an intended commercial price for its vaccine spike backs, but it did present scenarios based on $82 and $64 per shot. At those prices, Moderna's shot wouldn't be all that different from the cost of other vaccines in the States. For example, you can get a measles, mumps, and rubella shot for $135 at CVS. A standard seasonal flu shot costs $50. In March, Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bonsell, said his company has already been working with pharmacy chains and those that negotiate pricing between drug manufacturers and pharmacies. And they aren't the only one. Pfizer's chief executive, Albert Borla, said in July he figures Pfizer can be even more competitive in a commercial setting. The FDA opened the door to over-the-counter hearing aids last month, and now Sony is walking through it. As Connor Hare reports, Sony announced plans to provide a cheaper hearing aid that users can buy, fit, and program themselves without needing to visit a hearing specialist. 
He'll be working with the Danish hearing aid manufacturer, WS Audiology. The two companies have already begun developing their first product. Both companies said in a joint video announcement that they want to rebrand the devices as more of a hearing enhancement than a hearing aid, with additional features like smartphone connectivity. They hope that they can help address some of the stigma that come with hearing aids. Almost 30 million U.S. adults could benefit from hearing aids, but only about 16% of adults under 70 have ever used them. In their video, Sony and WSA said their ultimate goal is to make hearing aids as common and useful as contact lenses. U.S. residents might soon get birth control without a prescription. As Zoe Becker reports, on November 18th, a joint FDA advisory committee will meet to review Perigo's application to switch Opal from a prescription med to over-the-counter. Opal is a daily oral contraceptive. If approved, the pill would be the first birth control available without a prescription in the U.S. The company's affiliate, HRA Pharma, applied for the switch in July. It beat out Cadence Health, which also has been discussing with the FDA about converting their birth control pill to over-the-counter. Perigol released a statement that said removing the prescription requirement would improve access to a contraceptive that is well-tolerated and notably more effective at preventing pregnancy than all current methods available over-the-counter. In 2019, Bristol-Myers Squibb acquired Celgene. At the time, it had to choose between ducrivacidinib and a similar but already approved asset called Otesla. So it chose ducrivacidinib. And as Zoe Becker reports, it turns out that decision was a good one. Earlier this week, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the drug for the treatment of moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. It will launch as Sotictu. Otesla is currently the drug of choice for treating moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. But Samit Hirawa, the chief medical officer at Bristol-Myers Squibb, he told Fierce's Zoe Becker that the drug Sotictu will be the new standard of care. And it proved superior over Otesla in head-to-head trials. And unlike Otesla, it doesn't have a black box warning label. According to Hirawat, the drug has the potential for more than $4 billion in revenue. Drugs that treat NASH are making progress. As Gabrielle Mason reports, here's the rundown. Earlier this week, Ormed Pharmaceuticals posted promising phase two results for its oral insulin candidate. The drug is designed to treat diabetes and NASH. The company now awaits phase three readouts. Acara Therapeutics has also reported strong evidence that its NASH candidate improves liver fibrosis, though it has yet to share a full breakdown of safety data from a phase 2b trial. Maryland-based Altimune has also seen success in a phase 1b trial evaluating its obesity and NASH treatment. It's still left to be seen if any of these treatments can make it all the way to FDA approval. Medical conferences are often a platform to showcase new clinical trophies, but right now, that isn't the case for Merck. At this year's European Society for Medical Oncology meeting, Merck presented a series of trial flops for Keytruda, a medication for various cancers. After a word from our sponsor, we'll hear from Angus Liu and Max Bayer. They're going to discuss if the Merck immunotherapy has reached a bottleneck or if it was just bad luck. Zyma Research is a world leader in sample collection. 
Safe Collect Sample Collection Kit are designed for at-home sample collection with no cold shipping or expedited shipping required. Samples stay stable at ambient temperature for up to 30 days, and samples are safe to transport with DNA RNA shield and activating pathogens, including COVID-19 and monkeypox. Safe Collect Sample Kits can be used to detect a number of pathogens, including but not limited to SARS-CoV-2, dengue virus, Ebola virus, influenza A, rhinovirus, MERS coronavirus, West Nile virus, as well as a number of bacteria and yeast and eukaryotes. From NASA to Nobel Prize winners, those who rely on safe, simple, reliable sample collection use Zymo Research products. To learn more about safe collect sample collection kits, go to ZymoResearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O research.com. So we just wrapped up a very busy ASMO meeting, to put it mildly. Uh, we witnessed several interesting data readouts, good or bad. Uh, first of all, Max, you were on site in Paris. What was it like? Well, it was wonderful that it was in Paris. I, I very much think, thank the ESMO coordinators for that. Um, it was massive. It was on this uh, held on this large campus called the Port de, Port of uh, Versailles. People from all over the world were in attendance. There was, of course, a large presence from European countries. Uh, one of the auditoriums sort of housed specific makeshift meeting rooms for the large pharmas. AstraZeneca and Merck had the most space allotted there. Uh, and then, of course, there was tons of data, uh, data from the big pharmas, data from small biotechs, data across different modalities of treating cancer. Uh, and so, Angus, you know, just looking at some of the data, I know you covered a lot of this. What were you finding in terms of some of the readouts? Yeah, I suspect uh, ESMO really hates PD-1L1s this year. I mean, there are just so many failed trials. I think the most notable one is uh, Merck and Esai's combination of Kichudan and the lymphoma in first-line liver cancer. Uh, apparently, adding Kichuda to uh, lymphoma didn't really help in terms of in extending patients' lives. Uh, remember, the FDA had previously rejected Merck's application for an accelerated approval of this combination based on tumor response data. So the expectation back then was that it was just a simple delay that Merck would just need to wait for this new phase three data to file again. But this failure is is, is just so unexpected. And and to centric and Avastin is the current standard of care in, in first line liver cancer, right? Yeah, exactly. So now doctors are going to wonder, you know, you have a two drug combination that's the standard of care here. And they're just going to wonder if Lanvima alone, just a single agent, can achieve what Roche's two drug can do. So that's one PD-1 trial that, that didn't pan out um, from ESMO. Are there any other notable I.O. failures? Yeah, like I said, there are just so many. Um, the, the other one, actually three, uh, I think I'm going to touch upon, uh, it's just they are focused on adjuvanted treatment of early stage kidney cancer. So uh, the data, the three failed data are um, Bristol-Myers combination of Optivo and Yervoy, uh, Roche-Tocentric. They both failed in uh, their respective company-sponsored phase three trials when used after surgery in early-stage kidney cancer. And there is another uh, cooperative group initiated in phase three. Uh, it tested Optivo monotherapy uh, and used it both before and after surgery. That also didn't work any better than simple surveillance at preventing relapse or death. Uh, both, like I said, optimal monotherapy used both before and after surgery. So these failures really, you know, 
Prince Omaya's rushed failure leave Kichuda as currently the only PD-1L1 inhibitor with an FDA approval in adjuvant treatment of uh, kidney cancer. And by the estimates uh by SVB Securities analyst Danik Raybosch, this could mean uh, up to $6.4 billion in global sales for Kichuda by 2027. You know, this, this you may recall that uh, Nectar, Nectar and uh, BMS, they had their deal went up in flames in March, and that was because of some persistent failures between uh, Bristol Myers Squibb's Opdivo and Nectar's uh, Bempeg. Uh, that's an IL-2 uh, immune activator. Uh, but we kind of got to look under the hood here at ESMO. Uh, and in patients with melanoma, uh, Bempeg and Opdivo was worse than Opdivo alone. This is in a, in a, in a phase of, of, of immuno-oncology where a lot of particularly large pharmas are sort of playing mix and match with their immune, right. uh, with their checkpoint inhibitors, trying to see what's going to elevate them and mm-hmm. in what cancers. Uh, it clearly is not Bempeg for BMS. Right. Yeah. I think another hot potential candidate that people are looking at a potential boost to existing PD-1 L1 inhibitors is Tigit. Uh, so I, I asked uh, Dr. Charlie Fuchs at Genentech, and uh, of course, this is a trial that everybody is looking at at the moment, uh, the Skyscraper 1 trial um, in uh, testing uh, tocentric enterocolumab in PDL1 high first line and small cell and cancer. So I asked him for an update of that trial. Um, he just said they expect to read out overall survival uh, next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just a reminder to everybody: this is uh, this trial previously missed uh, statistical significance on progression-free survival, and still awaits final overall survival data. Uh, so. Also in Tigit, uh, Max, other companies are obviously also working, still working on this. Uh, I saw you talk to GSK about their Tigit as well. Yes. So just to zoom out, you know, uh, Tigit is another potential uh, sort of checkpoint inhibitor that that people are looking at here. You know, to 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 elaborate on this conversation, we're sort of there's sort of two different things that you could talk about with with amino oncology. People trying to find new checkpoint inhibitors, try and find that next PD one PDL one uh, inhibitor, uh, and Combining PDL1 and, and PD1 inhibitors with, uh, you know, some other options to sort of in, invigorate them. So that, so I would sort of say those are the two avenues. Tidget is that first avenue. I got to, to ask GSK about this, uh, and they said that they are looking at their, their Tidget in combination with their anti PDL1, but they're also looking at it, uh, from a triplet therapy, uh, which would look at the Tidget, uh, the company's PDL1, uh, and also an anti CD96. Yeah. It's on a lot of drug to give to, give to a patient for therapies. Right. Obviously, apart from TIGID, some people are still hanging on to some of the existing no mechanisms. So AstraZeneca, uh, it also offered up some data for its pdl one CDLA for bispecific. So how, Max, how do those uh, data look like? Any signs whether it could shake Kituda's dominance? So CTLA-4 is a target that has been uh, noted in the past uh, BMS has, has looked at this target, but toxicities have been an issue with CTLA-4. Um, so AstraZeneca was sort of showing this data in the hopes that it, it could sort of show that the efficacy of this bispecific could not only rival Keytruda, but that the toxicities wouldn't be so much of an issue. They sort of succeeded. They had one data set from a 1500 milligram of the bispecific that did rival 
uh, Keytruda in, in, in efficacy. The problem was 80% of the patients dosed had either a grade three or a grade four adverse event. 70% of the patients uh, with that dosing group discontinued treatment as a result of treatment-related adverse effects. So what did they do? They knocked down the dose in half. Uh, they knocked it down to 750 milligrams. That took the grade three, grade four adverse events from 80 to 50. Still pretty high. Still pretty high though. Um, but what they found was that it was still, it was slightly lower than Keytruda in terms of uh, overall efficacy in the entire population. But in people who are not expressing a lot of PDL1, uh, that was shown to be able to exceed, uh, Keytruda's efficacy. There's another type of bispecific, uh, this one from Regeneron, uh, CD3 bispecific. We have this data in ovarian cancer. Um, next, uh, to, just to begin with, why do you think this is one, this data is worth covering and, uh, what do the data say? So Regeneron had some interesting data on, uh, their CD3 MUC16 targeting. Uh, MUC16 is a protein that's, that's present in ovarian cancers in looking at sort of a variety of doses in this first phase one. Patients who received at least one full dose, the overall response rate was 14.3%, which, you know, for patients in this trial, which had a median of four and a half treatment regimens, one patient was treated 17 times. Um, mm. That is somewhat promising, just given the degree of, of, of the, the, the amount of prior treatment regimens. But here was what was more interesting. Uh, in patients who had an elevated level of MUC16, which again is an indicator, of ovarian cancer, uh, that response rate um, jumped up to 30.8%. The disease control rate uh, was 61.5%. When I asked um, uh, uh, Izzy Lowey at uh, Regeneron about this data and whether or not that was sort of hinting at a biomarker that they might use in the future, he wasn't really quite ready to say that because they're still in such an early development phase that they're playing around with the bispecifics and they're also going to be adding uh, PDL1 to this. Um, and uh, they are also looking at another uh, bi-specific that includes MUC16. So, you know, it is obviously important to the company and to the point that you had made, Angus. It's at the very least, uh, you know, a greater than zero. I mean, it, there's some some hinting at some success <laughs> with, uh, with 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 CD3 in a solid tumor. Obviously, the more critical data needs to come out in the future, especially once they land on a dose level. But some early promise. Yeah, I think. All in all, a ton of data was showed at ESMO. I mean, a lot of things involving uh, checkpoint inhibitors, bispecifics coming into the fold, and that's that's just a, a, a taste. Um, Angus, overall, what was your you know sort of uh, wrap of, of ESMO and, and anything else that you're sort of that sort of brought came to your attention? Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about immune oncology, but there there is a large part of the, of the biopharma universe that that are not. Focus on immune oncology. So before we finish this discussion, I would like to kind of briefly mention two more uh, data sets outside of I.O. So one is uh, slightly better than expected and the other one uh, worse than expected. So first, the weaker one, uh, we have Amgen's Luma Keras. Um, as Amgen had previously announced, the Keras inhibitors uh, confirmatory trial hit its PFS endpoint. But uh, detailed data showed really a decrease in efficacy markers on several fronts. Uh, so this one is really giving people thoughts that because of the lowered, uh, lowered efficacy, there are reasons to believe that Amgen really leave the door open for more competition from uh, 
from the likes of Mirati Therapeutics. So Wall Street analysts believe these just weren't that exciting data, and they look forward to what Mirati could bring with its uh, Keras inhibitor. And now the better one, uh, this one is an uh, antibody drug conjugate, uh, Gilead's trotelvine, heavily pretreated HR-positive, HER2-negative breast cancer. Uh, remember at ESCO, the drug really reported some disappointing uh, progression-free survival data. But then Gilead recently said the trial had hit the overall survival endpoint. Turns out uh, the median OS benefit for Trudelvi uh, over chemotherapy came, uh, came in at 3.2 months, while analysts were previously only expecting 2.45 months. This could be a huge win for Gilead, so we'll just have to look uh, in the future to see where Trudelvi lands on the commercial landscape. Well, uh, Angus, thank you so much for this, for, for sitting down and talking all things cancer data here and um, for your help covering ESMO. It was a pleasure and uh, so exciting to see sort of what's on the horizon. Yeah, definitely, Max. Monkeypox continues to spread in the U.S. and worldwide. So the FDA granted its first emergency use authorization to a diagnostic test for monkeypox. This regulatory path was also used for COVID-19 tests. But the FDA learned a few lessons from the pandemic and hopes the new guidelines will help avoid the problems seen then. Here to discuss this monkeypox test is Connor Hale and Andrea Park. Hey, Connor. So today we're here talking about the FDA's decision to start doling out emergency use authorizations for monkeypox tests. Can you tell us more about emergency use authorizations? Sure, sure. So emergency authorizations allow the FDA to greenlight products faster when the agency says that there's a pressing need and doesn't have any available alternatives. So since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, the FDA has granted more than 400 of these EUAs to molecular, antigen, and antibody tests. However, public health and government officials have faced criticism over the speed of their response to the monkeypox outbreak so far, with more than 22,000 positive cases in the U.S. to date since it was first detected in May. So then how will this first EUA increase the number of tests available? Yeah, Quest Diagnostics is behind the test, and they say that now they're planning to gear up laboratories for monkeypox testing in both California and Virginia to help cover both coasts of the country. Um, earlier this summer, the company said it was aiming to support up to 30,000 tests per week, but that depends on demand. Yeah, and so what does that demand for monkeypox tests look like right now? Has it been outpacing supply? How are we doing? Well, it has and it hasn't in a way. The director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, said during a hearing on Capitol Hill this past week that demand for the CDC's own test has reached about 14 to 20% of their lab capacity. However, some of the people who have showed up asking for a test, you know, worried that they might have been exposed, weren't able to get one because they hadn't begun to show symptoms yet, specifically the rash. The test uses a skin swab that depends on that rash. So she said that there's been a lot of outreach to the public on how and when to go get a test, and also a lot of outreach to healthcare providers on how to manage the new infection as well. Other people at the same time might have been turned away due to unnecessary test rationing. Uh, Commissioner of the FDA, Robert Califf, who was also at that hearing, said that there hasn't been a shortage of the tests themselves, but a shortage of access due to inefficiencies in the system. Mm -hmm. That's an issue we saw a lot during the COVID pandemic, too, when sometimes tests were just impossible to track down. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but this time around, you know, what is the FDA doing to patch over those inefficiencies and improve access to monkeypox tests? Well, the agency said it would prioritize the review of you know, high throughput laboratory tests as well as the smaller rapid home based tests, you know, similar to what we've seen during COVID. Uh, the FDA also said now that it would allow some academic medical centers to conduct their own tests without having them first go through federal review. That's that's something they also tried to do during the COVID pandemic too, right? That's correct. Although this is a much narrower policy than we've seen before. In early 2020, the FDA said that it would allow certain COVID antibody tests to be sold without review, while at the time all of its staff were focused on evaluating hundreds of molecular lab tests that were coming in. That decision allowed dozens of tests from overseas to flood the U.S. market, including some that were inaccurate or some that were just outright fakes and didn't work at all. So within months of that, the FDA had to backtrack and then ban them from being sold. So now, this time, the government is limiting this policy to academic medical centers with a good track record. Uh, Here's FDA Chief Robert Califf talking about monkeypox tests during the Capitol Hill hearing. First of all, let me uh, concur with Dr. Walensky. There's never been a shortage of tests, but there's been a shortage of access to tests because of inefficiencies uh, in the system. So I'd say on all fronts, uh, the gates are open uh, under a watchful eye because we also must keep in mind that one of the lessons from COVID was that when the gates were open, a lot of tests that turned out not to be so good got out there and we had to rein them back in. Cool. Well, thanks, Connor, for that rundown and for chatting with me about this. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to cover in the coming weeks. Sure. Thank you very much. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's The Bottom Line from the top line.